In Colossians 3.12, Paul shifts his focus from what believers should put off to what they should put on as part of their new identity in Christ. This transition is crucial in understanding the Christian journey. Earlier in verses 359a, Paul outlines the behaviors and traits that believers should discard, essentially the vices that are not in alignment with a Christian life. In verses 3, 9, 11, he elaborates on the transformative power of Christ, emphasizing the new identity that believers assume when they accept Christ. This new identity is not just a label, but comes with expectations and responsibilities, which Paul begins to outline in verses 3, 12, 17. Paul's message is that a righteous identity should naturally lead to righteous behavior. This behavior is not just a moral obligation, but serves as an external manifestation of an internal transformation. In other words, how one acts in the world is a testament to the spiritual changes that have occurred within. It's not enough to claim a new identity in Christ. One must also live in a way that reflects this transformation. This alignment between internal change and external actions is what Paul argues for, accentuating that righteous behavior is the only sure proof that a genuine internal transformation has taken place. Moreover, MacArthur affirms the concept of divine election, the idea that believers are chosen by God rather than becoming Christians solely by their own choice. MacArthur cites various scriptural passages to support this view. Ephesians 1, 4, for instance, states that God chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Similarly, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians express gratitude for God's choice of them for salvation, a choice made from the beginning and not based on their good works, 1 Thess. 1, 4, 2 Thess. 2, 13. Furthermore, MacArthur refers to 2 Timothy 1, 9 which says that believers are called according to his own purpose and grace, asserting that this grace was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In addition, MacArthur mentions that the names of believers have been written in the Book of Life, even before the world was created, as indicated in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Overall, MacArthur contends that the act of becoming a Christian is fundamentally rooted in God's sovereign grace and predestined plan, rather than human initiative or merit. Further, MacArthur accentuates the significance of God's election in making believers holy and beloved. The term holy, derived from the Greek word hagios, signifies being set apart or separate from the rest of the world. According to MacArthur, God's act of choosing believers inherently separates them from the mainstream of humanity, pulling them closer to himself. This divine selection serves a purpose to make believers distinct from the world in their actions and character. When believers fail to live up to this distinctiveness by not acting differently from the world, they are, in essence, negating the very reason for their divine calling. MacArthur's interpretation serves as a reminder of the responsibility that comes with being chosen by God, urging believers to live in a manner that reflects their holy status. Besides, MacArthur affirms that believers being beloved of God signifies they are special recipients of God's love. MacArthur debates against the notion that the doctrine of election is a cold or fatalistic concept. Instead, he posits that election is rooted in God's profound and incomprehensible love for His chosen people. He supports this by referencing Ephesians 1, 
4.5, which states that God predestined the elect for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ, motivated by His love and the kind intention of His will. MacArthur's interpretation aims to underscore the warmth and depth of God's love, which serves as the foundation for the doctrine of election. Additionally, MacArthur discusses the concept of being chosen by God, a term that was originally applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. MacArthur disputes that this status has now been extended to all who come to faith in Christ, as Israel has been temporarily set aside and Gentiles have been grafted in. He cites various scriptures to support the idea that those who are saved are chosen by God, such as Acts 13 48 which describes Paul and Barnabas turning to the Gentiles after the Jews rejected the word of God. Also, MacArthur delves into the theme of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he will save, as expressed in Romans 9, 13, 16, 19, 22. These verses discuss God's right to have mercy and compassion on whomever he chooses, highlighting that salvation is not a result of human will or effort, but solely depends on God's mercy. Moreover, the text confronts the question of why God would find fault in people if they cannot resist His will, answering that it is not for humans to question God's actions or intentions. In summary, MacArthur's interpretation focuses on the shift from Israel to the Church as the chosen people of God, and asserts the sovereignty of God in the process of salvation. He argues that being chosen is now a status available to all who come to faith in Christ and that this choosing is solely the work of God, not dependent on human will or actions. Furthermore, MacArthur highlights the concept of divine election or predestination in the Christian faith, drawing from various New Testament passages to support his point. He cites Romans 11, 4, 5, Ephesians 1, 4, 2, Thessalonians 2, 13, and 2 Timothy 1, 8. 9. To show that the idea of being chosen by God is a recurring theme in the teachings of the apostles. According to MacArthur, these passages collectively affirm that believers are chosen by God for salvation and a holy calling, not based on their own works or merits, but according to God's own purpose and grace. This choice, he contends, was made before the foundation of the world or from all eternity highlighting the eternal nature of God's plan for individual believers. MacArthur suggests that this divine election is a cornerstone of Christian doctrine, encouraging believers to embrace it as a source of comfort and assurance in their faith journey. In addition, it underscores the sovereignty of God in the process of salvation, indicating that it is God's gracious choice, rather than human effort, that ultimately brings about spiritual redemption. Further. MacArthur indicates the transformative power of the doctrine of election in Christian theology. According to MacArthur, this doctrine serves multiple functions that are beneficial to the believer's spiritual life. First, it crushes human pride by highlighting that salvation is not a human achievement but a divine gift. This perspective naturally exalts God, placing Him at the center of one's faith and life. Secondly, the doctrine of election instills a sense of joy and gratitude in believers. Understanding that they are chosen by God creates a profound sense of thankfulness, as it underscores the unmerited favor they have received. This gratitude is not just momentary, but extends into eternal privileges and assurance, providing a steadfast hope for the future. Thirdly, 
MacArthur debates that the doctrine promotes holiness in the life of the believer. The awareness of being chosen by God serves as a powerful motivator for living a life that is pleasing to him, encouraging moral and ethical conduct. Fourthly, the doctrine of election imbues believers with boldness and courage. The assurance of eternal life and divine favor eliminates the fear of worldly challenges and opposition. In summary for MacArthur, the doctrine of election is not merely a theological point to be debated, but a transformative truth that shapes the believer's character, outlook and actions in profound ways. Besides, MacArthur focuses on the term put on, which is derived from the Greek word enduo. This word essentially means to put on clothes or to envelop in. MacArthur maintains that the qualities listed in the verse are not just abstract virtues, but are meant to cover or envelop the new man, the person one becomes after accepting Christ. In other words, these virtues are not optional add-ons, but integral to the Christian identity. Much like clothes are to a person, they are to be worn, internalized and displayed as a natural extension of one's renewed self in Christ. This perspective underscores the transformative power of faith, suggesting that embracing Christian virtues is not merely a matter of moral obedience, but a profound change in one's spiritual and ethical wardrobe. Additionally, MacArthur points out the importance of compassion as a defining characteristic of a true believer. The term heart in the verse is translated from the Greek word splanchna, which literally refers to the internal organs of the human body. However, in the New Testament, it is often used metaphorically to describe the seat of human emotions. The word oiktirmos means compassion, pity, mercy or sympathy. MacArthur suggests that the phrase could be understood as put on heartfelt compassion or having a deep gut-level feeling of compassion. MacArthur points out that this quality of compassion is divine, citing references from Luke 6.36 and James 5.11. Also, he notes that Jesus perfectly exhibited this trait, as seen in Matthew 9.36. In the ancient world where the vulnerable were often neglected, this quality was particularly needed. The sick, injured or elderly were frequently left to fend for themselves, leading to many unnecessary deaths. MacArthur disputes that believers should not be indifferent to suffering, but should actively seek to meet the needs of others embodying the compassion that is a hallmark of divine character. Moreover, MacArthur reiterates the intrinsic relationship between kindness and compassion. He refers to the original Greek term for kindness, which signifies a grace that softens the entire character, mitigating any harshness. MacArthur cites Jesus' words, My yoke is easy, Matthew 11.30, to illustrate that kindness is not burdensome, but rather a natural expression of concern for others. He argues that God's kindness extends even to those who are ungrateful and wicked, as mentioned in Luke 6.35. This divine kindness is what leads people to repentance, as stated in Romans 2.4 and Titus 3.4. Furthermore, MacArthur points to Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11.29.30 as an example of kindness. Jesus invites people to take on his yoke and learn from him, promising that they will find rest for their souls because his yoke is easy and his burden light. The ultimate example of kindness, according to MacArthur, is the Good Samaritan from Luke 10.25, 37.
The Samaritan's actions serve as a model for how we should live, showing kindness and compassion to others without expecting anything in return. In summary, MacArthur's interpretation of Colossians 3.12 underscores the importance of kindness as a divine quality that should be emulated by all, as it is a reflection of God's own character. In addition, MacArthur discusses the concept of tapinophrosun, or humility, and its transformation from a negative term in classical Greek to a virtue in Christian theology. In classical Greek, humility was not seen as a positive quality. It was often associated with lowliness or inferiority. However, Christianity redefined this term, elevating it to a virtue that is highly valued in the faith. MacArthur notes that humility serves as an antidote to self-love, which can be detrimental to relationships. He contrasts this genuine form of humility with the false humility promoted by false teachers, as mentioned in Colossians 2.18 and 2.23. According to MacArthur, humility was a defining characteristic of Jesus, as indicated in Matthew 11.29. Further, it is underlined in various other New Testament scriptures such as Ephesians 4, 2, Philippians 2, 3 and following, and 1 Peter 5, 5. In these texts, humility is presented as a cornerstone of Christian virtue, essential for maintaining healthy relationships and spiritual growth. Therefore, MacArthur contends that humility, as understood in the Christian context, is not just a desirable quality, but a fundamental aspect of Christian living. Besides, MacArthur underscores the Christian virtue of gentleness, or prouts in Greek. According to MacArthur, gentleness is not a sign of weakness or lack of resolve, rather it is closely tied to humility. A gentle person recognizes his own sinful nature and is willing to bear the burdens that others' sins may impose on him. This quality is not innate, but is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, as referenced in Galatians 5, 22-23. MacArthur debates that gentleness should be a defining characteristic of a Christian's behavior in all situations. This includes restoring a brother who has sinned, Galatians 6 1, and defending one's faith against criticisms from non believers, 2 Timothy 2 25, 1 Peter 3 15. In essence, gentleness is a spiritual quality that enables a Christian to handle interpersonal relationships and conflicts in a Christ like manner. Additionally, MacArthur focuses on the concept of patience, which is translated from the Greek word macrothumia. According to MacArthur, a patient person refrains from anger towards others, embodying a spirit of enduring tolerance. He cites William Barclay to elaborate that patience is the quality that allows one to withstand the foolishness, unteachability, insults and ill-treatment from fellow humans without succumbing to cynicism, despair, bitterness or wrath. MacArthur maintains that patience was a defining characteristic of Jesus Christ. He refers to Paul's letter to Timothy, where Paul states that Jesus demonstrated perfect patience as an example for believers. MacArthur also mentions that God's patience is crucial for human salvation, citing 2 Peter 3.15. In essence, patience is not just a virtue, but a divine quality, integral to the Christian faith and crucial for both interpersonal relationships and spiritual salvation. Next, MacArthur accentuates the concept of bearing with one another, which he defines as enduring hardships, threats, or complaints without retaliation. 
MacArthur contrasts the behavior of Paul and the Corinthians to illustrate this point. Paul, when faced with revilement and persecution, chose to bless and endure, as stated in 1 Corinthians 4.12. The Corinthians, on the other hand, were quick to take legal action against each other, prompting Paul to question why they would not rather be wronged or defrauded than resort to such measures, 1 Corinthians 6.7. Also, MacArthur refers to Ephesians 4.2, where believers are encouraged to show forbearance and cites the Thessalonians as a positive example. Paul commended the Thessalonians for their perseverance and faith amidst persecutions and afflictions, using the same Greek term, anexomai, that is used in Colossians 3.13. MacArthur's overarching message is that the Christian virtue of forbearance should be a defining characteristic of believers, enabling them to endure challenges without seeking revenge or retribution. Moreover, MacArthur affirms the importance of forgiveness among believers. The Greek term charizomenoi is highlighted to mean to be gracious, and the text uses a reflexive pronoun, essentially reading as forgiving yourselves. MacArthur disputes that the church should be a community where mutual forgiveness is practiced. Paul sets Jesus Christ as the ultimate model for forgiveness. The phrase, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, serves as a reminder that Christ's act of forgiving our sins should be the standard by which we forgive others. Furthermore, MacArthur notes that the text refers to whoever has a complaint against anyone, which includes grievances arising from sin, error, or debt. In summary, MacArthur underscores that forgiveness is not just an individual act, but a collective responsibility within the Church, and that Jesus Christ serves as the ultimate example for this and other virtues. In addition, MacArthur asserts the centrality of love in the Christian life. Drawing on the metaphor of clothing, MacArthur argues that love is the belt that holds together all other virtues like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. According to him, love is the essential element that fosters unity within the church community. Without love, virtues like compassion and patience become empty and legalistic. MacArthur cites various scriptures to support his point, including Romans 13.10, which states that love fulfills the law, and Galatians 5.22, which lists love as a fruit of the Spirit-filled life. He contends that practicing virtues in isolation from love is not only ineffective, but also unacceptable to God. MacArthur refers to 1 Corinthians 13.1.3 to stress that actions not motivated by love are meaningless. Further, he mentions Philippians 1, 9, Galatians 5, 6, and John 14, 15, to show that even knowledge, faith, and obedience are valuable only when they are rooted in love. In summary, MacArthur posits that love is not just one among many virtues, but the foundational quality that gives meaning and authenticity to all other virtues, thereby creating unity and fellowship among believers. Besides, MacArthur outlines three priorities that should define the life of a new man in Christ. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. MacArthur delves into the Greek term, irene, which is translated as peace, to explain its dual meaning. On one hand, it signifies a formal agreement or treaty, and on the other, it represents an attitude of rest or security. MacArthur highlights that believers have both forms of peace through Christ. 
objectively they are at peace with God, as justified by faith, a peace that was bought by the sacrifice of Jesus. This peace is not just a cessation of hostilities, but also brings a sense of rest and security to the believer. Paul refers to this as the peace of God in his letter to the Philippians, stating that it will guard the hearts and minds of those in Christ Jesus. MacArthur notes that Paul calls it the peace of Christ in Colossians, to highlight that this peace is specifically brought by Jesus himself. Therefore, the new man in Christ should be characterized by this multifaceted peace, along with being guided by the word and name of Christ. Additionally, MacArthur focuses on the term rule, which originates from the Greek word brabuo. This term is unique to the New Testament and is used to describe the role of an umpire in an athletic contest. MacArthur debates that the peace of Christ serves as a spiritual umpire for believers, guiding them in decision-making. He outlines two key factors that should be considered when making a choice. First, the decision should align with the peace and unity that the believer has with Christ. MacArthur cites 1 Corinthians 6, 17-18 to illustrate this point, pointing out that our union with the Lord compels us to live pure lives. Second, the decision should leave the believer with a deep abiding sense of peace in their heart. These two factors not only guide believers in making choices, but also act as deterrents against sin. Sin disrupts the peace and unity one has with Christ, thereby affecting the believer's inner sense of rest and security. Therefore, MacArthur suggests that the peace of Christ should be the guiding principle in a believer's life, helping them make decisions that are in harmony with their faith. Next, MacArthur indicates that peace is a multifaceted concept, encompassing objective, subjective, and relational dimensions. Objectively, peace is rooted in a reconciled relationship with Christ, which serves as the foundation for inner subjective peace. This inner tranquility then extends to relational peace, fostering unity and harmony within the community of believers. MacArthur disputes that individuals who have made peace with Christ and have internal peace are naturally inclined to live in a state of unity with others. In essence, peace is not just an individual experience, but a communal one, as believers are called to live in peace in one body. This interconnectedness of peace at various levels underscores the holistic well-being that comes from a life aligned with Christ. Also, MacArthur maintains the importance of thankfulness in maintaining a peaceful heart. He points out that gratitude is a recurring theme in the book of Colossians, as well as in other New Testament writings. According to MacArthur, a sense of thankfulness naturally arises in believers as a response to God's actions and blessings. This is in contrast to unbelievers, who are often marked by ingratitude, as noted in Romans 1.21. MacArthur suggests that a humble spirit of gratitude towards God is not just an isolated feeling, but has a broader impact on one's interactions with others. In essence, peace and gratitude are intrinsically connected. One fosters the other. Being thankful, therefore, is not just a personal virtue, but also a social one influencing our relationships, and contributing to a sense of communal peace. Moreover, MacArthur points out the importance of letting the Word of Christ, or Scripture, deeply influence and guide one's life. According to MacArthur, the term dwell signifies that the Word should take up residence in our lives, becoming a part of who we are. 
The word richly suggests that this influence should be abundant and pervasive, affecting every aspect of our lives, including our thoughts, words, and actions. MacArthur argues that virtues like peace, thankfulness, unity, and love are natural outcomes of a life governed by Scripture. He outlines four ways in which the Word can dwell in us, hearing it, handling it, hiding it, and holding it fast. These actions require active engagement with the Scripture through reading, studying, and living according to its teachings. Furthermore, MacArthur draws a parallel between letting the Word of Christ dwell richly and being filled with the Spirit, as mentioned in Ephesians 5.18. He posits that the Word serves as the mechanism by which the Holy Spirit influences and directs the will. Both concepts, he contends, are essentially identical in their outcomes, as evidenced by the similarities in the passages that follow each in the Bible. In addition, MacArthur debates that being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Word of God dwell in one's life richly are essentially the same spiritual condition, just viewed from different perspectives. According to MacArthur, to be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of God's Word, and conversely, to have the Word dwelling richly in one's life is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. He points out that these two expressions are interchangeable, because the Holy Spirit is both the author and the empowering force behind the Word of God. MacArthur sees these verses as a brief parallel to Ephesians 5.19.6. 9. Reiterating that the outcomes of being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word dwell richly are the same. In essence, MacArthur suggests that the Holy Spirit and the Word are intrinsically linked each enabling believers to live a life that is aligned with divine will and purpose. Further, MacArthur focuses on the dual outcomes of letting the Word of Christ dwell within a believer. According to MacArthur, the verse highlights two specific results, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching is understood as the positive aspect, where one imparts constructive truth to others. On the other hand, admonishing serves as the negative counterpart to teaching. It involves warning individuals about the potential consequences of their actions. MacArthur reiterates that both teaching and admonishing are not just isolated acts, but are the natural outcomes of a life that is filled with the Word of Christ. In essence, a believer who is deeply rooted in the teachings of Christ will naturally engage in both imparting wisdom and offering cautionary advice to others. Besides, MacArthur repeats that the Word of Christ should not only inform us, but also evoke emotional responses, manifesting in the form of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. According to MacArthur, psalms are musical adaptations of the Old Testament psalms, hymns are expressions of praise to God, and spiritual songs focus on personal testimonies of what God has done for us. He suggests that some parts of the New Testament like Colossians 1, 15, 20 and Philippians 2, 6, 11, were likely hymns sung in the early Christian church. MacArthur disputes that the richness of Christ's word in us should lead to a life filled with thankfulness and musical expressions of faith. These various forms of musical worship serve as a multidimensional response to the transformative power of God's word in our lives. Additionally, MacArthur discusses the term charity, which can be translated as either thankfulness or grace. MacArthur suggests that both interpretations could be valid in this context, as believers sing out of a sense of gratitude for God's grace. 
Also, he clarifies that when Paul advises believers to sing in your hearts, the intent is not to discourage vocal singing. Rather, Paul underlines the importance of the heart's alignment with the words being sung. According to MacArthur, the primary purpose of singing in a religious context is to offer praise and worship to God for His glory and pleasure. The edification of believers is considered a secondary benefit. Thus, the focus is on genuine, heartfelt worship that aligns with the sentiments expressed vocally. Moreover, MacArthur underscores the importance of living a Christian life that aligns with the teachings and character of Jesus Christ. According to MacArthur, the verse serves as a fundamental guideline for Christians, instructing them to conduct all actions and words in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means that every aspect of life, whether significant or mundane, should reflect the values and desires of Jesus. MacArthur cites another verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, to reinforce this point, stating that all actions should aim to glorify God. Importantly, MacArthur notes that living in this manner should not be seen as a burdensome obligation. Instead, it should be carried out willingly and gratefully, as an expression of thanks to God the Father, through Jesus Christ. The focus is not on legalistic duty, but on a heartfelt commitment to align one's life with Christian principles. Last but not least, MacArthur repeats the Christian obligation to embody Christ in their lives, aiming for Christ-likeness as the ultimate goal. MacArthur cites Romans 13.14 to underline the need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to avoid indulging in worldly desires. He shares a story from Guy H. King where a child refers to King as the Jesus Man, highlighting the profound impact of the label and prompting self-reflection on how closely one resembles Christ. Furthermore, MacArthur recounts Jerome K. Jerome's story, The Passing of the Third Floor Back, which serves as an allegory for Christ-like behavior. The story is set in a low-income lodging house inhabited by a diverse group of people, including a downtrodden servant girl. A new lodger moves in, immediately standing out for his kindness and compassion. He treats everyone, especially the servant girl, with respect and love, leading her to question if he is the embodiment of Christ. MacArthur's central message is that believers should strive to be so imbued with the qualities of Jesus Christ that others can see Christ in them. This involves not just avoiding sin, but actively engaging in acts of kindness, compassion and love. The aim is to live in such a way that prompts others to see the resemblance between the believer and Christ, thereby fulfilling the Christian calling to be Christ-like. In conclusion, in Colossians 3.12, Paul transitions from discussing what believers should put off to what they should put on, underlining that a Christian's new identity in Christ comes with responsibilities. MacArthur elaborates on this, focusing on the concept of divine election, where believers are chosen by God. He argues that this election is rooted in God's love and serves a purpose, to make believers distinct in their actions and character. In addition, MacArthur discusses the virtues that should define a Christian, such as compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, drawing from the original Greek terms to deepen the understanding of these virtues. Further, MacArthur accentuates the transformative power of the doctrine of election, which serves to crush human pride, instill joy, promote holiness, and imbue believers with courage. Besides, he discusses the importance of virtues like compassion and kindness, contending that they are divine qualities 
that should be emulated by all. MacArthur delves into the concept of humility, which has been transformed from a negative term in classical Greek to a virtue in Christian theology. Additionally, he discusses other virtues like gentleness and patience, underscoring their divine quality and integral role in the Christian faith. Also, MacArthur outlines the importance of communal virtues like forbearance and forgiveness, setting Jesus Christ as the ultimate model. He also discusses the centrality of love, debating that it is the foundational quality that gives meaning to all other virtues. MacArthur outlines three priorities for the new man in Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. He elaborates on the concept of peace, emphasizing its multifaceted nature, and discusses the importance of thankfulness in maintaining a peaceful heart. Moreover, MacArthur focuses on the role of Scripture in a believer's life, disputing that it should deeply influence and guide one's actions and decisions. He suggests that being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Word of God dwell in one's life are essentially the same spiritual condition. Furthermore, MacArthur discusses the outcomes of letting the Word of Christ dwell within a believer, which include teaching and admonishing one another, and the importance of musical expressions of faith. In summary, MacArthur provides a comprehensive interpretation of Colossians 3.12. 17. Accentuating the transformative power of a new identity in Christ, the virtues that should define a Christian, and the responsibilities that come with being chosen by God. He argues that these virtues are not just individual acts, but are interconnected, shaping the believer's character and influencing their interactions with others.